You ever get over to New Jersey, Nash? Not if I can help it. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. Hello, friends. I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. have any news to cover today because the movie that we said we were going to watch we actually got to watch because it was streaming (laughs) all right highlander uh we watched it on amazon and we're pretty sure it's the director's cut we watched the 117 minute long version yes yes yeah so i'm pretty sure it's the director's yeah we've seen i found a couple versions Either 116 minutes or 117 minutes. It was probably right on the edge of that. And that's the director's cut. Well, the director's cut includes the flashback where he saves the little girl from the Nazis. Oh, I thought that was in the original. No. All right. Starting off on my notes, Rachel browses for the movie. (laughs) Ooh, starting at the very beginning. (laughs) Before the beginning. <laughs> it's a flashback, if you will, <laughs> which this movie was full of. A flashback of the podcast. All right, Queen intro. Obviously. Obviously. I don't know that this movie is this movie without Queen. More movies should have a complete Queen soundtrack. This movie is not this movie without Queen. Without Queen, this movie is fucking ridiculous. Right. It's ridiculous. The only thing that makes this movie as 80s magic as this movie is, is the phenomenal soundtrack for by Queen. Hands Which, down. The line, the line that, or the scene that Rachel mentioned as part of the director's cut, you cut back to Nazi Germany. McLeod is saving this little girl, Rachel. He gets shot. She says, oh, you didn't die. Hey, it's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic is the title of the Queen album for this soundtrack because Queen was really excited about the movie. They were supposed to do like one song for the movie. And after they watched the movie, they were like, no, 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 no. We're going to do the whole movie soundtrack. So they did, but the movie they bombed. were skeptical about how <laughs> the well movie the movie bombed. would perform. Yeah. The movie bombed. So instead of releasing it as the Highlander soundtrack, they released it as Queen. It's a, kind, it's of a kind of magic. Yes. Which comes from that director's cut scene, which was cut from the uh, theatrical version. All right. So we enter Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Did McLeod slash Nash just 
routinely go to professional wrestling matches. Maybe it was an at effort. Madison Square Garden. Maybe it was an effort to keep up with the times. I mean, you got nothing else to do. He's immortal. He has sworn off relationships. He's literally got nothing to do with his time. Yeah, you go watch a wrestling movie. Plus, we're trying to highlight violence in this scene. Right, right. And so, I, I labeled this as a brave intro scene. Right. So the best way to highlight, to sort of immediately, bang, set the tone for this movie as the kind of violent movie it's going to be is to start out with this wrestling scene. Zoom in on Madison Square Garden pro wrestling match. Camera pans out to the nosebleeds. Spotlight on Christopher Lambert. These are the eyes of a hunted man. (laughs) (laughs) As the camera zooms in on him, we flash back. And he does have a very specific spotlight. Like he, he is spotlit. So that you immediately pick him out in this scene. Yes, it's very dark. There's a spotlight on his face. He has like the $5 seats, the ones that are so far you don't even know what wrestlers are fighting. (laughs) He's way, way up and like far away from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as he's staring off into the distance, this is a hallmark of the Highlander series in general. Distance, distant glazed over stare fade into flashback. Arbitrary and, historical period. Yes. And this I one d- happens to be his origin story. I do love the flip-flop transitions we get in this scene where we get the violent crowd watching the wrestling and the violent wrestlers themselves and then we get the immediately immediate flip-flop to the clansmen marching over the field uh to like dramatic obviously they're heading to war so we get the immediate flip-flop between past and present and i always liked that right like rapid fire transition that they do in this scene yeah connor mcleod is wandering through this battle Wondering why everyone keeps running away from him. No one's going to fight him. Are we there yet? I don't think we're that, there yet. That's this. That's this scene. Oh, you're right. I, ju- I, I jumped ahead. Don't fuck with me on Highlander. I know this movie. God damn it. <laughs> uh, okay. So we cut to him kind of getting ready for battle. And then... We return back to Madison Square Garden, and he gets up, walks away. We're not sure why, but it may be related to the fact that when he walks into the parking deck, a very bland-looking white man... Named Fasil. Named Fasil, who's supposed to be Middle Eastern. Uh, Polish national. Oh, Polish. Yeah, yeah. Well... And he's Polish right now, but the name Fasil, uh, Fasil Iman, I think. Yeah. I wonder if, um, I wonder if that's supposed to translate to something very straightforward. As like, 
and he's got sunglasses on. He's mysterious. I don't know. We can okay. just leave this to mystery. 80s cars. <laughs> Sneakers. <laughs> I, love your, scene. I love your impressions of this scene. He steps on a Coke can, which I always thought was really interesting. The like he's stepping and he stops because he stepped on a Coke can and he finishes smashing the Coke can and then he continues. Well, walking. he's getting he's getting his adversary's attention. Is he drawing him out? Or is it just No, it it's this is my interpretation of it is he knows there's someone there. So he makes a very distinctive noise to draw out his opponent. I always thought of it as a like callback to the fact that he's in modern times. It's like a grounding it, thing. Yeah. The I guess it is a the Coke can under the very 80s sneaker. These are some banging kicks. These Nikes he's got. He's sporting here. Yeah. It's it's a look because he's got Nikes. He's got tight, light wash jeans. He's got a long khaki rain jacket. <laughs> yes, the, the like. Belted tightly at the waist. Okay, okay. So he's got, <laughs> in this scene, he has the khaki trench coat. Yes. With acid wash jeans and white, like, Nike sneakers. Yeah. And then later, we have, like, a brown, like, bomber jacket with acid wash jeans <laughs> and white Nikes. All of which he's somehow storing his sword in at any given moment. <laughs> even, even the bomber jacket. Even the bomber jacket. He... Whoosh. I love this. Movie. Sword comes out. I okay. Just love anyway, this movie. <laughs> um, generic white guy shows up named Fasil. Mm -hmm. Established. Um, they sword fight. I my my notes are backflips, <laughs> degraded concrete as the sword <laughs> digs into the concrete pillar of the parking deck, uh, and then we have the. The quickening. One thing I feel we are remiss in noting here, which I hate to throw us into the rewind machine, but think of this as a Highlander flashback, is I don't think I noticed the first, I don't know how many times I've watched this movie, that the wrestlers are wearing sparkly sequined Confederate flags. One of them is. Yes. Yeah. And I thought, this is one of several scenes in this movie that have not aged well. And these wrestlers wearing the Confederate flag has not aged well. And there's also a lot going on in this fight scene. I, I do love your snapshot impressions <laughs> of this fight scene. But this is interesting. First, when they first meet, McLeod says, Fazil, wait. So we get the idea that he's not... He's not down for this fight. Right. McCloud, like his mentor, McCloud seems like his whole, I guess, position on the, like, immortal, there can be only one thing, is, dude, we're immortal. Why are we trying to kill each other? Let's just 
Leave each other be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we definitely get the impression immediately that he knows him because he knows his name. Yes, they're and familiar with each he's other. He's not interested in killing him, but this man attacks him anyway. So this is a this is a hard open for this movie. Because we go str- I wonder if that's like a parallel for like the level of self-awareness of the person. So the later um, with the the like mentor scene with McLeod, he explains there will come a time, uh, the gathering, where you'll feel an irresistible pull to a faraway land when there are very few of us left. And it's like probably like any very like physical urge. It's like how self-aware you are of the urges that are arising determines how much you react to them versus like notice them and suppress it and process it. It's probably more like how much are you invested in the prize? How much are you invested in your life and the other immortal people that are walking this lonely road with you? Or how invested are you in killing them all and obtaining the prize? Right. But still, this is a hard open for this movie because we we immediately jump in to wrestling, violence imagery, and then the first series of flashbacks he has is not him prepping for battle necessarily. It's literally them marching off to battle. Oh, that's right. We don't go back and establish the timeline leading up to the battle until after this fight scene, the sword fight scene that he has with Fasil. Right, the the scene, the flashback when he's just sitting in the bleachers or sitting in the, the nosebleed section, whatever, is them marching off to war, but before they actually engage in battle. Right. And it's very much setting the tone of like brotherly camaraderie with his peers. Right, so we don't get a lot of prep. We don't, we as viewers, we as viewers, cold viewers, who have never experienced this mythology before. We don't get prep for this at all. We immediately get dumped in the deep end of the pool, narratively speaking, because we aren't going to get any kind of an explanation of who or what he is and why they're fighting for another 30 minutes maybe into the movie. So I always thought this was a really interesting choice for this movie because there's no buildup. We're just immediately dumped. The only buildup we get is through his flashback scenes. Uh, McLeod chops his head off. Um, electricity. Spotlight on McLeod's face. Wind in his hair. Explosions blowing up all the glass windows of the vehicles. Oil coming out the bottom. Oil uh, pouring out of the engines. And the orgasmic release <laughs> <laughs> of the experience of McLeod uh, post-kill uh, collapsing to yes. the ground. So clearly shit's happening, right? So not only, as previously stated, are we dumped into the deep end of the pool, but we've just realized that this pool might be supernatural. Right. Because not only did him he cut this chopping dude's heads off, off this guy's head yes. wasn't just 
him chopping off a guy's head, there's some kind of power dynamic here that he is receiving. Yeah, so this is a bold, cold opening for a movie. This is like a, we would expect this in a television show now, where you get immediately dumped into the narrative of the show and then then go back and get an explanation. But really, movies of this time period, for the most part, you're expecting buildup, like a slow transition where we sort of ease the viewer into what right. we're getting It's like into. the whole world-building dynamic yes. of you're exposing the reader to this foreign world and the, the viewer slash reader is expected to just absorb a series of details and accumulate that into what are the mechanisms of how this world operates. Right, we're definitely trying to create an immediate sense of depth by not explaining anything. Right. And this is this is like the sci-fi fantasy dynamic is you are the fantasy dynamic is you are in a world that is not like your earth. There's some fundamental difference in how the world operates. And here's an example. All right, so after after the fight scene <laughs> Does he put up? We the immediately sword? go into yeah. a flashback. I think we immediately go into flashback. I I have post origin story. Uh, burning cross. Yes. On top of a building. So the burning cross was like a. Gondor calls for aid. Gondor calls for aid. It was a clan's call. The clan is calling you to come to our defense. So it's interesting they include it because. Without context, that's a controversial symbol. But again, we just throw it in there because we are throwing all of these world-building elements into this story to create a depth that really, there's not a ton of depth to this sort of supernatural creature that they've created. They're just immortal. I mean, they're immortal, but they don't have any additional powers or anything. The only thing they have is just over time, they gather power. And when you kill another one, you get to take that power. But right. above and beyond that, it's there's not a whole lot. So they're just long-lived humans. So they're really trying to be like, guys, this is cool. Just stick with us. We're we're gonna make you. We're gonna make you not regret that you bought this ticket. Um, so it's just interesting that they're just they throw a lot of narrative elements at us, just like rapid fire right at the beginning, in an attempt to establish this just immediately rich mythology right so then we pan we so we've transitioned to this ancient scottish battle scene we pan over to a peak with a man on a horse enter the kurgan we get a little bro talking before they get to the battle well we get a little establishment ahead. of the world, establishment of the fact that he's got friends, he's got right, a the, wife. At this point, the listeners have watched the movie. Oh, I mean, but we get a dick joke. Can't skip the dick joke. That's that's the brotherly camaraderie right, but building. Synopsizing is one of the things we do because it helps us walk through it. So don't skip stuff. It's not in my notes. <laughs> That's not my fault if your notes aren't complete. I wrote the Kirken spelling. (laughs) 
K-U-R-G-E-N. C-A-N. All right. And then uh, lore about Kurgan's strategy. Lore right. about Kurgan's strategy. <laughs> so Kurg, the Kurgan is talking to one of his lieutenants. Remember our agreement, Murdoch. The boy is mine. He's colluding with this clan. So the clan McLeod is already going to um, battle with, I think it's the Frasers. Frasers, yes. And since they're going to battle with the Frasers, Kurgan is taking advantage of this opportunity. So the Kurgan, we find out later, he's one, like the one remaining member of a society Ancient called the Kurgans. Yes. And he's just the last one. And so he is working with the Frasers, acting as their champion, whatever. Uh, and he has explained to everyone that the boy is mine. I'm, I'm guessing that... Uh, okay, so from later, like Highlander lore, whatever, uh, immortals can sense each other. Yes. So if the this Kurgan is, is the only immortal around, and he literally immortals are the only ones that can sense other immortals, and he knows that Connor McCloud is an immortal, the Kurgan must have been like sneaking around Glenfinnan village <laughs> and noticed, oh, ooh, here's here's an immortal that hasn't transitioned yet. Hmm. So we get several, so my main complaint with the Highlander universe in general, which the Highlander universe comprises four movies, three that were actually released in theaters, one made for TV, TV movie, and then a whole TV series, which ran for many years. Over the course of the Highlander television show, they play very fast and loose with the lore. There's times where they are able to sense an immortal who is just having who just has the potential to be an immortal. They're still mortal. They just haven't died. Right. It's inconsistent. It's when it's yes. convenient for the and plot. There's also times where they they're like, no, we don't know. You can't know until the person dies. So in Highlander Four Endgame, Duncan McCloud, who is the main character of the television show, as opposed to Connor McLeod, who is the main Highlander, <laughs> the main immortal in movies one, two, and three. He actually senses that this woman that he's married has the potential to be an immortal. And we have a brief discussion about how, yes, but she has to die a violent death. So he ends up murdering her in order to make her immortal so they can be together forever, which she is not appreciative of. But it's implied that if he had not murdered her, she would have not become immortal. And there's an episode of the television show where there's a famous pianist, and the famous pianist is someone who has the potential to be immortal. And an immortal actually murders her to make her immortal. Um, of course, afterwards, she can't play because her artistry was tied up in the passion of mortality, which is a whole other thing. But there's also several times where they're like, well, we don't know. You can't know until somebody dies whether they're going to be immortal or not. 
But it would make sense that you have the potential to be immortal, but you don't get to be immortal until you die a violent death because there's immortals of varying ages. Right. Every immortal that you meet is a different age. They're not all like mid-20s. Right. Connor is supposed to be quite young. But then we have Sean Connery, who's clearly far older. So... Far older. I I mean, if we just sort of assume that every once in a while they can sense an immortal, let's go with that. Then, yes, the Kurgan must Regardless, in this case, the Kurgan knows that Connor McCloud is a potential immortal. uh, And there's something that he gets out of killing an immortal. I have huge Highlander. Truly huge. (laughs) Throw that out there. Yes, there's something that he gets, which is just killing him before he has a chance to learn how to fight back. So he stabs him and then gets ready for the decapitation. Uh, But the Highland, the uh, clan McLeod rallies, uh, recovers McLeod, takes him back home. And we zoom in on McLeod's eye as he's laying on the battlefield. And then when we zoom out, he's driving fast in his car out of the parking lot, parking garage. Immediately before this, just not to interrupt your synopsis again, but first he throws his sword up on this really strange thing in the... In the parking deck, there's a hole in the ceiling and... About two feet underneath it is this metal grate uh, full of leaves. Uh, my uh, my speculation is that it's ventilation because this is a completely enclosed parking deck. Uh, you need some kind of airflow, and this is just to catch debris coming from yes. the top level. So he tosses his sword up there, and we get one of the cooler scenes in the movie where he runs off into the mist created by the sprinklers and sort of disappears into the mist, which is one of my favorite. Why are the sprinklers running? Oh, well, from the from the, from the orgasmic electrical Yes, from the storm. orgasmic electric storm. All right, so I transition to car scene. Pulls out of the parking deck. He's coming up the ramp. The police pull up. And police brutality ensues. At this point, the police have no reason to suspect him, but they still very aggressively uh, arrest him. Point a Uh, gun at his head and cock it back? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Don't move, pal. Don't even breathe. Uh, Transition. Let's see. Oh, wait. Side scroll. To gut wound recovery. Yes, in the past. Yes, flashback. Again. Right, and we get the priest with the mullet mohawk. And inquiring minds want to know, is the mullet mohawk historically accurate? Okay, regardless, I'm thinking of taking a screenshot when I go to the hair salon later this week. (laughs) (laughs) It is magnificent. It is it is a high quality like wide mohawk 
Yes. Uh, yeah. It's a mullet and, hawk. And I I need a haircut before Thanksgiving pictures. There is no other way to describe this than um, it's even partially shaved in the front. Yes. So that his mullet mohawk does not start until slightly farther back on the top of his head. Yep. This priest is sporting the most metal It's a haircut. brave hairstyle. It's brave. Yep. It's brave. Yeah, definitely. Yep. All right. So the priest is giving death rites. They want him, the people around want him to stay longer. He says, there are other people dying uh, and walks out. Uh, and then we zoom in on a more and more pallid-looking Christopher Lambert in a kilt and with a bandaged belly. <laughs> He's a Highlander by God. The last Sunday here shall not be that of a wailing woman. And then transition back to the crime scene. Yes, this crime scene has more people in it somehow than the crime scene uh, in Nick Knight. <laughs> How about... How about the police chief tripping over the corpse and spilling his coffee? (laughs) And then the forensic technician arrives and she goes, you're supposed to notify forensics at the same time as homicide, implying that there was a homicide called in that nobody called forensics to come in to investigate. All right, so she, she goes underneath the... Crime scene. String? String, ribbon, yeah. whatever. String with uh, and then, sign uh, on it. And then interrogation. Russell Nash? Russell Nash, yes. Russell Nash at the police station, grilling him. What's this? A sword? <laughs> <laughs> it's a magical moment. You're an antique dealer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. What's that? A sword. <laughs> uh, there, there's there's some pretty witty banter back and forth between the. I'm I'm guessing the police chief. Yeah, the uh, police chief's the older fellow that sits at the desk. Yeah, and then yes. there's Garfield, the like. He might not be. He might just be the um, captain, the captain of that particular precinct. Right. And then Garfield is like a beat cop. Yeah. The guy who picked him up and pointed the gun That's at him for no reason. For. Yeah. Yeah. He he's the one who held the gun to his head and said, Don't even breathe. And so Garfield throws a punch, Nash dodges, Nash retaliates. Uh am I being arrested? Not yet. Then then we're and just through. Walks out. And he leaves. There are two moments here. That are they, these are there's two establishing moments here. Okay, there's an establishing moment, and there's a moment that doesn't age very well. So when Brenda arrives, so Brenda is the forensics technician that arrives at the crime scene, and when she walks under the tape, she finds the sword, and it's the sword that they take and show to Nash, and he makes the wisecrack about it's just a sword, um, and she knows what this sword is. As soon as she grabs it. What the hell do you got? A Toledo Salamanca. A what? A sword, Frank. A very rare sword. Was it worth much? Only about a million bucks. 
any antique dealer on Hudson Street could tell you that. So this is supposed to be an establishing moment for Brenda. Because Brenda knows swords. She's got she's got a thing for swords. Uh, and there's also a moment here with Garfield, which is my second does not age well moment in the movie. And he calls Nash a slur. And oh, they yeah. have kind of a back and forth about uh, really wildly inappropriate. Why Garfield? You cruising for some? <laughs> for a piece of ass. And it does not age well. This, this back and forth right here. This is not a moment that, that you still love about this movie uh, 35 years later. Well, I think Nash calling out the implication of the police officer is very woke. Yeah, that's not a terrible right. moment. But just the fact that we include this dialogue at all is right. a little dated. It, the, it dates the movie. Yeah, the the, the culture of the police uh, officer referring to that in a derogatory manner. Yes. Yeah. All right, so we have the interrogation scene. And then Kurgan cruises into town. <laughs> oh, the Kurgan. Clancy is selling the Kurgan. Clancy Brown, Mr. Krabs. <laughs> Mr. Krabs. <laughs> Mr. Krabs is selling this moment. Right. So um, when we, we talked about uh, Nick Knight versus... LaCroix. Yes. The contrast, the foil. Yes. Right? The Kurgan as the the almost absurd level of seriousness of the Kurgan to being the creepy evil bad guy versus Nash slash McLeod as being the kind of good guy yes that chemistry even we they don't interact much but the contrast between the scenes of these two characters sets up the whole dynamic for the movie it does the franchise in fact it 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 absolutely does and the reason this character works is clancy brown as the kurgan works because Anybody else at the helm of this character is a ridiculous character. This character is one of those that can could easily have been a ruin the movie. He could easily and instead he makes the movie. Right. It's like um Eddie Redmayne in Jupiter Ascending. Yes. Right? Eddie Redmayne just committing 150% to that character completely seriously. Makes the whole movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the same here. All right. So then the Kurgan gets to a hotel. Generously a hotel. Uh, generously speaking, it is a place that you can go to and pay for a room to sleep in. Yes. And then we have a whole montage of the Kurgan. Well, before that, when he's walking in, there's a fellow sitting at the desk and he goes, That's right, Mr. Boomer, love to strike me, spine to butt. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's like the ho- the implied homeless guy that's 
just constantly interacting with the guy at the desk and the guy at the desk is over it. But I've always wondered, is this a plug? Is this a sponsored plug for Lucky Strike? Or Oh, this, is this like a product placement? This seems like such an incongruous line. Because first of all, the Kurgan signs into this hotel as Victor Kruger and under an assumed name. And then he like takes out a wad of cash and gives the guy a 20. And he says, hey, man, anything you need, just dial O. What, what does he say? Uh, girls or blow, just, just dial, dial o, o, man. Yes. And then the guy's like, that's right. Lucky strike means fine tobacco. And it, oh, he says tobacco. But nothing in that that's scene a good point. would lead to that line. And he just goes, stop talking to the customers or shut up. We don't in any way explain why this man is plugging Lucky Strike cigarettes. That's a good point. But I, I thought I, I always I didn't interpret that as a product placement. Yes, okay. but I, I is that what that is? I don't, that I would be interested to know. In because, retrospect, probably. Yeah, because yeah. The, otherwise that line is just sort of floating out there in yeah. dialogue space. So the Kurgan goes up to the room and. He only has a small suitcase with him. So he sets down the suitcase, unlocks the latches, opens it up, and it's a four-piece sword. Some assembly required. <laughs> some assembly required. Uh, some assembly and, like, uh, sword form montage uh, interspersed with him actually, like, mechanically assembling the sword, which... The, the hilt, the guard, and the first half of the blade, the assembly mechanically, great, awesome. Looks, looks good, looks plausible. The second half of the blade connecting to the first half of the blade, there's only about generously an inch and a half of metal inserting into the first half of the blade. And no visible mechanism of how that actually like latches and secures together. You'd you'd need at least like half the length of the blade, uh, like the section of the blade. So probably like a good, I don't know, eight ten inches that would insert into the first half of the blade to make it rigid enough to be usable as a sword. <laughs> Deep thoughts by Matthew Hoover. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so my engineering sense from a uh, mechanical engineering training perspective, uh, that sword would not withstand any kind of combat. I shall simply refer to my earlier statement about the underdeveloped lore in the totality of the Highlander series. Right. Okay. Uh, so there's the whole sword montage. And then <laughs> a companion a, a, arrives. I, I feel like Rachel has a lot more to contribute about this next part. Player two enters the game. So he does a cool, okay, we get the sword assembly. We get some cool, I love when he rolls the sword around between his arms. Yes. And then someone knocks on the door and opens the door. And it's this like teased hair, leather clad, <laughs> somebody. Conjured up. Like belly button v-neck 
leather yes. tunic. Somebody conjured up an image of what they think a sex worker might look like. And they threw it into this section willy-nilly. And she, she says, Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Which is probably the creepiest response he could have made. <laughs> and we refer to this scene later because he's walking out of the hotel. And the guy behind the desk says, hey, Kinky said, or Candy said, you're a little kinky. And that's when he grabs him by the shirt and goes, never speak to me again. I think there's there's a couple more lines there. Not in the candy he, scene. Well, Just, no, no, of no, no. You when, when he's talking to the guy, he like kind of reiterates the point multiple times. Yeah, like, never, never speak, speak to, me. to me. Look at me. Look at me. Yeah. Don't fucking talk to me. Yeah, basically. <laughs> the gathering. He says, the gathering. He like sniffs his sword. Yes, that's what that's why I wrote that down because it was very like emphasized in the filming. The gathering. The gathering. The gathering. And we've't heard this before. No, yet. this is our first introduction to the phrase the gathering, except at the very beginning when we get that dialogue oh, yes. with Sean Connery where he records that small paragraph. yeah, which apparently, was not in the original, like, plan. This is a stronger movie without it because it's an exposition dump. Yes. Yes. So at the be- at the very beginning of the movie, I I think I had a note about intro text. Yes, uh, but we we didn't discuss it at the time. Uh, but originally, the movie wasn't going to have this intro text, but we have like eight or ten sentences. Yes. And they're like, uh, probably some focus groups or something. Uh, we're like, <laughs> we, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you have to have pay attention to the movie. What? We have to pay attention to the movie? Ugh. <laughs> Just explain it to us beforehand. And so th- that's that's my... Yeah, it reminds me of the the Blade Runner theatrical release where they included all the voiceover done by Harrison Harrison Ford Ford. over the phone. Yes. And so they added a ton of voiceover. And it honestly is like if you're paying attention to the movie, it really detracts from the movie. Right. So I had only watched, so Blade Runner's not what we're reviewing, but just on a slight tangent here um blade runner i had only ever seen the the director's cut which does not include the voiceover and i tried watching it with the voiceover and it was unwatchable i I felt like someone was spelling everything out to me and i did not love it but that's what we get at the beginning here is a big exposition dump so this is a more impactful moment if we don't have that at the beginning because this would be our first introduction to the idea of the this gathering. Is the gathering. Yeah. Whatever that is, we're, we've arrived. Kurgan candy scene over. Kurgan candy. <laughs> <laughs> um, we cut to Brenda, Brenda, the forensic 
technician slash sword expert. like ancient metallurgist. Yes. Expert, whatever. Uh, one of the other technicians brings in a little, uh, a slide, a glass, like my microscope slide. Oh yeah. We recovered these metal shards from the body and his Close. clothing. Mm -hmm. And she, she's like, okay. Yeah. She looks back in her microscope and then she kind of takes a breath and then she looks at the slide and picks it up and she's just looking at it. She hasn't put it in the microscope yet, but she's like very seriously considering the significance of this. And then she's at the crime scene. No, she puts it in a um, like metallurgical analysis machine. Oh, that's and right. And it gives her a Yeah, printout. there's the whole scene in the hallway where she's at like the mass spectrography machine. Yes, and it gives her a printout. And, and she's like And as it's printing what? out data, she's like, no way. What? No, that doesn't make sense. Right. And then Oh yeah. And then we transition back to the parking garage and Nash is collecting uh his sword from the like drain the ventilation grate. Yeah, the drain thing. thing. Uh and at the same time Brenda shows up with a metal detector and she walks over to the concrete column, goes up it from the bottom with a metal detector, with a metal detector yes, to the very like prominent slash from the sword, the killing blow. <laughs> and then it beeps. And my engineering sense says, why did that metal detector not detect the rebar in the concrete? But the metal detector must have a plot device installed on it. So it only detected the relevant metal shards. Which was like a one and a half inch by three quarter inch Huge chunk of metal. chunk Absolutely off of this blade. Absolutely fucking gigantic. There is no reason... This amount of metal should have sheared off of this dude's blade, and he didn't notice. And he didn't notice. And he didn't notice. Right. This it's, is a significant amount of. Th this is like metal you have loss. to reforge the sword. Yes. Because you have this like large chunk of the the blade and, missing, and it's vertical. It's vertical in the length of the blade. No, no. It's up and down in the metal pillar, in the concrete pillar. When she pulls it out, it's not in the direction that the sword slashed into the pillar. It's up and down. She pulls it out and it is. Oh, from a different direction. Yeah, it's top to bottom in the pillar, okay, so, not side to side. Uh, this is reminiscent of Fang Bike Mark. Yes. From yes. a vampire. <laughs> because. Shit's confusing, okay? Horizontal, no vampires in this vertical. Movie, but. We can't keep this shit straight. Just throw it in there. No one's going to notice that it is in the wrong direction. I always notice. <laughs> I'm wondering now if this is more of a lack of communication between the like 
director slash writers and the set people. The concrete pillar slice is in the correct direction. It's clearly the same. That's type. A good point. It's 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 the slice that he put in there when he cut Fasil's head off. But the metal is embedded vertically. Embedded like in like ninety degrees to the yes, slash. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so she's she's extracting this large hunk of metal from the concrete pillar and she hears some movement of Nash he kicks a glass recovering bottle. him sore, his he sword. Clicks a, he kicks a glass bottle. Yeah. yeah. Presumably on accident. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows with Nash? Who knows with Nash? He's from lots of different places. He moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> so she, as a uh, a woman alone in the 80s in a dark uh, a woman alone remote environment ever, ever. Uh, we don't need to timeline that runs away to the stairs <laughs> smart move it's like the smartest move of any like female character in a movie <laughs> <laughs> she's like no <laughs> she just GTFO and <laughs> <laughs> she's out <laughs> So she goes to a bar and orders a very large drink. Yes. Uh, and then Nash shows up at the same bar. <laughs> Madison Square Gardens. Uh, he orders a Glenmorangie. Yes, double. Which I, I meant to look that up. Double on the rocks. And Rachel noted how full his glass is. And I thought, he's immortal. He can handle his liquor. Yeah, but I mean, he still just ordered a double. <laughs> Glen Morangy is a whiskey. Is it a scotch? It just says whiskey. Okay, yeah. My, my, my assumption was it was scotch because he's a Highlander. It's buttery, fruity, malty, and has a depth of flavor that's hard to beat at its age. I'll keep my eye out. It's a Highland single malt whiskey. Highland single malt whiskey. Yes. Probably not classified as legit scotch or whatever. It has to come from the scotch region of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> no offense intended. <laughs> Uncomprehended. Uh, forgive our ignorance. <laughs> uh, he makes some... Very poor flirtatious <laughs> attempts. Leading leading flirtation attempts. He's just like Madison Square Gardens. And she's like, what? He's like, You hmm? go there often? No, he goes, hmm? What? Like, like I didn't say anything. <laughs> Until she goes and sits next to him. And then he, she's like, what no, did she, you say? She stands next to him in a stance like she's ready to run away. Yes. Uh, I mean, kudos uh, to her. Like, she is a smart like street smart female character right right yeah but he just walks in he announces madison square gardens and both her and yeah, the madison bartender square garden you go there often no 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 both her and the bartender go what and he goes hmm go to the garden often What'd you what say? did you say hmm? <laughs> like he didn't say anything and then she goes over and stands next to him and says what did you say and he goes oh madison square gardens go there often Maybe for wrestling. 
<laughs> you know, the circus. <laughs> the circus, something else, wrestling. She's like, are you following me? And he's like, I want to walk you home, Brenda. I'd like to walk you home, Brenda. And somehow. Totally not creeper vibe. And somehow, some way, by some miracle, this woman resists that almost irresistible. She throws some money on the counter and leaves. She says, I can take care of myself. Pays for her drink and leaves. I mean, how you don't fall for that. Just, she must have like a, just a vagina of steel because, I mean, he was throwing it down thick. She just wasn't picking it up. (laughs) I mean, he's had 450 years to figure out how to pick up women and that's what he's got. I'd like to walk you home, Brenda. First of all, she never told him his name. Right, her name. Right. This she is, never told him her this name. This is the first time they've interacted directly. Yes. And he knows her name. Right. And somehow she doesn't we, pick up. We never actually explain yeah. how he knows her name. Yes, we do. How? So there's a scene. Oh, we haven't gotten there quite yet. I was going to say, he's reading her book later. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. He has he owns a copy of her yes, book. He's read her and book. the cover page of her book has a portrait of her uh yes. like headshot of her yes. with her bio. Okay. So he just recognizes her by chance from his library. Yes, because he's read her tome on a metallurgical history. It was of like her PhD or whatever. Yeah. So they he leaves like we exit the bar scene. The hunter becomes the hunted. <laughs> yes, because Brenda is following him. Yes. So he is leaving the bar. Despite his clever at, attempt. After he has up. recovered his sword. Yes. Brenda is following him because he's like hella sus. <laughs> and, and then the Kurgan shows up. And he tries to defeat him with a rope, a, a pipe and a rope, a pipe and a rope. Yeah. Like in Clue. You got your sword. Dude. No, no. It is relevant that he doesn't pull his sword out in this scene because Brenda is specifically following him to find this sword. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so had he pulled this sword out, he's tipping his He's tipping. Okay, his so the the shards of the sword, the, the shards of metal that were recovered from the victim's body and clothing, um, revealed some very specific information to Brenda, the PhD ancient sword metallurgist who works with the NYPD as a forensics who works as a analyst. forensic analyst. Conveniently, um, she realizes, wow, this these shards of metal are aged, like pre-BC, but using techniques that should not have been available until like 1500. Yes. And WTF. So she's on the hunt so for a So she's looking sword. for this 
sword that should not exist. Really, nobody's investigating the death of the guy who got his head cut off. That's not even relevant. Kind of the cops are. Yeah, it, it's a... Not Brenda. Yeah. Brenda don't give a shit. Brenda's trying to find this sword. That's the only reason she is following Nash. So it's important that he doesn't pull his sword out in this scene because it's the sword she's looking for. And if he pulls it out, she doesn't. she's not left. Right, she would see a street. katana yes. and be like, uh, what the fuck? Is that the one I'm looking for? Yeah. Right, so it's it's crucial. Okay, so it's relevant that he does not pull out his sword. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he fends off the Kurgan. They both escape. And we go back to the past. Back to the past. <laughs> it's a bar scene, or tavern. I guess tavern. Yes, of pub? Mid- medieval Scotland. It's the townspeople discussing he was he was dead, and he's... Not dead. He's not dead. That's, <laughs> there's something wrong. I'm with pretty that. sure that's the devil. <laughs> and then walks in as everybody's discussing how, like, morally wrong it is that he survived. In walks Connor McLeod. Which say what you want about Christopher Lambert's acting in this movie. But he does a very good job of implying when he is younger and when he is older. Yes. Yes. So he appears youthful in this moment. I would say Christopher Lambert's acting in this movie, just comprehensively, very good. His inflection. He learned English for this movie. Right. Yes. Right, this was, Rachel told me earlier, this was his second movie where he had to speak English. Yes. And his first movie where he had to speak English, he had like three lines. He was Tarzan. So he just spoke it, he just memorized it phonetically. Yes. And so this was the first movie that he was ever in that he had to like converse in right. English. And not only that, but he worked with a coach. To have a non-specific accent. So he has an accent that isn't specifically from anywhere right. in particular. Right. So, so he's not only learning English. He's learning English with a different accent. So like my main criticism of him in this movie is there are like, I'd say 75%. He's great. He sells the character. He does a really good job. But there's some scenes where... His intonation comes off as just really flat. And it seems like there's no like emotional investment in what he's saying. And that's probably just a side effect of the fact that he learned English for for this movie. It's like uh, Javier Bardem in, I think it was No Country for Old Men. I think that was one of his first like full American like movie roles and his accent is really like weird in that movie because Javier Bardem is from Spain. He's also from Northern Spain, which has an entirely different accent than other parts of Spain. Accent and dialect. Yes. Yeah. And 
And so that can work really well because you get this whole like exotic element Ooh. to how they're talking. I'd watch Javier Bardem. Uh, that was gibberish. Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel just had like a like <laughs> mouth open eye roll, like oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Javier. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I I would watch Javier Bardem in pretty much anything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Him. Yeah. I would say. Uh, him in Skyfall. I really liked his character. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, All right, uh, let's see. Back to my notes. Oh, yeah, so he's in... Okay, we're back to the tavern. Ah, yes. We're back on point. Right, okay. and we believe he's young when he walks in. Yes, he he plays this character believably as a, like, 20-year-old, like, Scottish guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so his all his friends are there, like everyone that he's grown up with. And surprise, and guys, I'm not dead. No one, everyone backs away from him. No one will look him in the eye. His, this woman who has kind of implied that she would do anything for him. I think it's implied she's his wife. Oh, or at least like Lover. betrothed. They make Love some. Her. They make some sex references yeah. at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, she she's saying some very negative things about him. His two brotherly comrades are kind of like, ah, uh, yeah, okay, sure. It is weird that he was dead last night, and now he's up and walking around. One is, but his other cousin is not. Dougal doesn't. Dougal's right. the one, one who's like, one we need is, to leave. One kind of completely turns on him. He's in league with Lucifer. Don't say that, Kate. I'll say it. You've the devil in you. My perspective is the, the woman is interacting more with the one guy. And he's kind of feeding off her skepticism about the whole thing but then Dougal is a little bit older and he's kind of like yeah it's kind of weird okay and then Connor comes in has interacts with them and then Dougal's like dude get out of here like run before anything bad happens cheese it my friend and Connor completely disregards this sage advice and uh, gets uh, strung up like a demon. <laughs> he gets put in like a stocks kind of thing. He gets um, like a yoke. Yeah, he, he gets tied up to a yoke and stoned out of town. The real loser in this scene is the chickens. In fact, I think we rewound this scene. So I yes. can show you the fact that a chicken gets kicked. Poor little chickens are just roaming about the square. They didn't know that this was stoning day. The crowd runs after McLeod. And to... a chicken gets kicked. Yep. And a, a chicken gets kicked. Poor chicken. Poor chicken. Ruminating in the room in nature. <laughs> which is his room <laughs> of ancient artifacts. Yes. In that his he... apartment. His like circular room. Full yes. Of... His circular room that he ruminates in. Yes. Uh, and then we 
I don't think anything significant happens between Only these that there's two more windows in this apartment than Nick Knight had in his apartment. And there's clearly it's matte paintings outside these windows. Right. Yes. Okay. But they're we, well done. We both noticed this. If you look through the windows at the buildings outside as the camera pans around, if you watch the backdrop, it's just like a matte painting, like a giant canvas like wall painted to look like a cityscape. Outside his windows. Outside of his windows. Like probably like 50 feet out away from his windows. And so you get a little bit of parallax as the camera pans across the room. But if you pay attention to the backdrop, you realize, oh, all That's these buildings in the backdrop are staying exactly the same position. Uh, okay, it's it's just a giant. It's painting. well done. But if you were not paying it, if you were not deliberately paying attention to the backdrop, if you haven't seen it's this movie really high quality five times, yeah, and you're looking out the windows instead of looking at Christopher Lambert as he brutally walks down the stairs, brutally walks down the stairs, not brutally. Right. Yeah. Rude. It's it's well done. It's well yeah. done. Um, just uh, just want to acknowledge the the quality of the the set team. There's nothing wrong with they a good really matte painting. You that. can't always film in a loft in New York or something. But you know, as long as it's all right. Well so done. he walks into the room in Ater and fade to him blacksmithing. Uh, uh, let's see. He's blacksmithing, and then he's kind of making out with. Heather. Heather. And then uh, enter Sean. Sean Connery. Highlight of the movie. <laughs> he jumps <laughs> over. He interrupts a uh, a moment, sexual moment on the side of the an, hill. An intimate moment. An intimate moment on the hill. Uh, and re- introduces himself as uh, Juan Villalobos. <laughs> Greetings. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, Chief Metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain, and I'm at your service. Long Spanish name. Uh, Chief (laughs) Metallurgist to Charles V of Spain. Uh, In no way having any other accent besides his usual Sean Connery accent. Which, which, so when we... Uh, we mentioned the the intro text. They had like the intro text narrated by Sean Connery. That was recorded remotely over the phone while Sean Connery was living in Spain working with a Spanish language tutor to perfect... <laughs> His Spanish accent. <laughs> it's all lies. And we thought, what's a Spanish accent? It's There's no lies. Spanish accent. It's all lies. It's just Sean Connery talking. You know what? He spent however long he was supposed to spend in Spain just hanging out in Spain. He was Every time they called, they were like, Sean, how's the Spanish accent going? And he's like, great. Thanks for asking. Never did anything. 
He was like, what? You hired me because I'm Sean Connery. You're going to get Sean Connery. If you didn't want Sean Connery, you should have hired Javier Bardem. And he just left it at that. Right. (laughs) So it's it's Sean Connery in a very, like, uh, 1600s, like, Spanish outfit with a very Spanish-looking facial hair. uh, A pointy beard. A pointy beard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, my next note is lightning on a cliff. Yes. We explain the quickening. And Christopher Lambert, <laughs> as lightning arcs across the sky. Yes. This is the first time we talk about the quickening. And he somehow teleports from just talking to Sean Connery to standing on a picturesque cliff getting hit by lightning as we discussed the quickening. Right, which is the how, how the immortals sense each other. Well, part of it. Yeah. Which I like later. Uh, he talks some more about the quickening. Um, so we have a training montage yes. with Sean Connery. Um, uh, I have an, uh, a note about uh, Depth Strider 3, which is Minecraft <laughs> reference to walking... Um, at the bottom of the water. Uh, but Sean is explaining to Connor McLeod about how he can't die. He's an immortal. We're the same, you and I. We are brothers. We are brothers. We are the same, McLeod. We are brothers. Yes, that's one of my most quoted lines. And so there, the there's show. a whole balance scene on a boat and... Sean's playing it fast and loose with the boat and eventually knocks him off into the water uh, and he sinks to the bottom. Oh, the the transitions into this scene, Rachel mentions uh, that she loves the like dingy, like poorly maintained fish tank in Russell Nash's apartment uh, because... The only time you ever see it is in this, when you transition into and out of this scene. So you zoom in to the fish tank, and then you transition to Connor McCloud at the bottom of the lake. Yes. Or the lock. The lock. Lock S something. I don't think we name the body of water. uh, He mentions that he's from... The town Glenfinnan, next Glen to Glenfinnan, Lockshiel, Lockshiel. Yes. Yeah, I'm. I'm assuming it's the same place because I don't think he's traveled very far. Scotland's not that big. It's big enough. It's big enough. That's what she said. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So we explained some more. Uh, there's a whole training montage, lots of fighting on edges of cliffs. And then we go to the market uh, with Sean and Connor and Heather. And Sean explains, Oh, you need to leave her, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've had three wives over the last 3,000 years. Uh, and the last one was 2,000 years ago. Yeah. And her uh, father I, made I would, me this sword. He said, 
I would save you that pain. You need to leave her. Yes. Uh, but he doesn't. Also, you can't have kids. So. Yeah. Immortals can't have kids. I feel like he could have explained that to Heather. Right. Yeah. He, you could have explained to Heather like, hey, we've been trying for like 15 years. It's not working. Maybe we can find some like orphans or whatever. You're, you're 28 now. You can probably still have kids. <laughs> <laughs> Is Did you see anybody at the market that you really liked? Like, obviously, I can't give you kids. But, you know, if you want to go. Maybe you could find somebody, like, you know, work something up. Matt's doing like a sensual wiggle over there. He's really trying to sell the idea that Connor might actually get Heather to go outside the bonds of marriage in an attempt to have kids. Which she doesn't canonically they never have that conversation right because we cut i mean we have a good flashback with her where we sort of cover their life together and clearly kids are not a part of it right um unless you count baby goats but we do get the origin of the sword in this scene oh yes at the market sean and i don't even remember his first name juan villalobos juan okay juan uh What do they call him? Um, Ramirez. Ramirez. Yes. Okay. Yes. Everybody always refers to him as Ramirez. Even though he's not Ramirez. He's Egyptian. I cannot swim, you Spanish peacock. I'm not Spanish. I'm Egyptian. You said you were from Spain. You're a liar. Well, (laughs) that that incarnation. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. So so on top of the whole... (laughs) Sean Connery as Juan Villalobos Ramirez, what Sanchez, whatever. Yeah. Um, apparently, he's before he was uh, Spanish, uh, he was from Egypt. He was originally Egyptian. Yes. You can tell by the way he is. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see this movie remade. Okay, we're going to get to this, but I want to see this re- movie remade with. The actors, the actual ethnicity that they claim to be. Of their origins. Yes. 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 Like, the Kurgan as, like, a Mongol. Yes. And, yeah, and Ramirez as an Egyptian. Right. Yes. And I think, I think. Connor I think as Christopher a Scottish Lambert, person. <laughs> Christopher Lambert. Looks Scottish enough. He sells it. He's, I mean, he's he sells it. Yeah. Would he sell it in twenty twenty two? Uh uh honestly, with a little more vocal training. Well, yeah. So in the past, I want him to have a better Scottish accent. In yeah. the in the modern day scenes, I'm okay with his yeah, ambiguous his accent. his ambiguous neutral accent is very appropriate for modern like present day but he should have definitely had a more pronounced scottish accent in the flashbacks yeah sean explains the origin of his sword because his last wife in like 500 something bc was a japanese princess and shikiko (laughs) and her father masamune uh forged him this sword 
which is unparalleled. It's unique, just like Shikigo. Just like Shikigo. And like Sean. R.I.P. Sean. R.I.P. Sean. Uh, Sean. Uh, And then, let's see, is there anything between there and the Kurgan in the tower? Yes, we go back for a brief moment into modern times. And we cover that one of the detectives saw Brenda talking to Nash. And the only reason we cover this is because later we find out that they're following Brenda in an effort to, to find out more information about Nash. So really the only thing we cover is we only cover that because later he's going to look out the window and see a guy in a car. And we got to know why they're following Brenda. And there is a third did not age well moment because they're swapping stories with each other. And he says, can you believe this? This guy's Vietnamese neighbor ate his dog. It's exactly the stereotypical <laughs> moment. <laughs> I, did, I did not pick that up. I must have been writing. <laughs> yes. He goes, can you believe it? This is the kind of shit people call it to me. <laughs> and this is not, this doesn't age well. This does not age well. We transition to Sean and Heather, or Ramirez and Heather, in a, an ancient Scottish tower. And they're drinking a lot. And Ramirez is regaling Heather with tales of his former loves and conquests, escapades, escapades when she says... Would you like some more wine? Oh, yeah, sure. And then zoom in on Sean's face. Shocked expression. Turn to the side. He's sensed something coming. What could it be? It's the Kurgan. (laughs) Door literally explodes. And here comes Clancy. The Kurgan doesn't just open a door. No. No. You don't get to be called the anything (laughs) by having some sort of moderation in your personality. The Kurgan turns the knob and opens the door. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Victor Kruger opens the door. The Kurgan, he just implodes doors. He just looks at them and they blow inward. And Sean realizes he's like 10 drinks in and he's not ready for this and i don't know if we covered where connor is we don't they just had a final training montage where he kind of does like a let's see if you can best me if we're actually trying to defeat each other and that's the one where he says this now pendejo shall we see what sort of swordsman you've become so he calls him pendejo Oh yeah. Okay. Which so is this was the most Spanish thing <laughs> that I had heard Sean say. I think they're trying to go for look. He's Spanish, guys. He said pendejo, uh, which at the time in 1600s ish Scotland or sorry, <laughs> Spain. Spain. Uh, it is used to describe uh, pubescent teens. Who thought they were adults. Which is very appropriate for uh, the guy that he's training to fight. 
it's far less appropriate now. It means more like idiot or yes, it's it, much it's, it's much more derogatory term. now. Yeah, but he he calls him pen. He goes, let's see, pendejo, and so they fight. And so after that, we don't see Sean again. He could be in town. He could be off gallivanting. We don't know. But he's not here in this moment. It's just Ramirez or whatever his Egyptian we, we name. We don't see Connor. You don't see Connor. Connor's off doing something. Yes. It's just Ramirez and Heather when the Kurgan um, implodes the door. Kurgan! Ramirez. So there's a pretty... Uh, Pretty good fight scene as ascending the stairs of this tower. And every time the Kurgan misses and his sword hits the wall, the wall just explodes. Implodes. Implodes. Sometimes it explodes. Sometimes it implodes. Whatever's convenient for the plot. Look, he's throwing around a lot of raw power, okay? He's got Th- these are two ancient immortals. He's got huge quickening. Huge. <laughs> so big. So big when he wags it around. Just, it just knocks blows walls up down. walls. It blows up walls and shit. Look. He he's got a huge quickening and he knows how to use it. Uh so pretty pretty early in the encounter, Sean slashes the Kurgan's neck. Which the scar on the Kurgan's neck is very visible. Like as soon as he is introduced, it, is character. introduced. Yes. Uh, and so this is where he got that slash from, um, and it changes his voice. So I was I was paying attention to his voice in the first scene where we see him, where he got stabs Connor and he has a much more like smooth baritone voice. Yeah. He definitely goes from Ramirez to Ramirez. (laughs) We pointed at each other. It was another magical moment. (laughs) Uh, at it, it definitely expands on the, the backstory of the Kurgan. Like, the Kurgan is older than Ramirez, and the Kurgan had gone that long without receiving some type of maiming injury. Yes. We also are establishing that their neck is extremely vulnerable because they don't scar anywhere else. That's right. And yet he scars on his throat. So we're kind of establishing that not only is beheading just because it's sort of hard to come back from beheading <laughs> like the final death for immortals, but also that their neck in general is their weak point. Okay. So the Kurgan gets his neck slashed. It kind of closes up pretty quick because as they're climbing the stairs, um, the Kurgan, talks to Ramirez and he already gets that like raspy voice to make a long story short, the Kurgan, uh, kills Ramirez. And in the, 
orgasmic throws at the top of the <laughs> stairs of the, the tower, the entire tower and the stairs that the Kurgan is standing on collapse. He falls to the ground uh, and... Uh, and then Heather comes to investigate. Well, she like, pops up over there. She pops up like, he she's, just fell she, down here. Is he Is he dead? She's spending this whole battle scene sort of running away. Because there's rocks being tossed around. Balls are Dodging. falling. Lightning's crashing down from the sky. Shit's going sideways. She was just having a delightful dinner with a friend, drinking some wine, and now her home is collapsing on top of her, and two dudes are sword fighting up the stairs. So she's sort of reacting appropriately. And when he falls down, she kind of pops up to investigate, like maybe that was the end of him. And I think he says something like, my pretty. Yeah, he grabs her by the neck and says, hello, my pretty. Yeah, and that's the end of that scene. Uh, so then we pop back to the city, and Brenda has been doing some research. Oh, Brenda. Oh, Brenda. Uh, Brenda, uh, so we're in a room with some computers, and Brenda and another, like, probably forensic technician, uh, computer expert guy. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, they, he Librarian. pulls up some, like, graphical handwriting analysis that wouldn't have existed then Um, uh, to compare the, the signatures on uh, like property deeds for like five generations on this, this business that Nash owns slash lives in. Uh, and all of the signatures match. <gasps> so what you've got here, Brenda, is a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700, pretending to croak every once in a while, leaving all his goods to kids who've been corpses for years and assuming their identities. Big plot reveal. Uh, and... The birth certificates for all of the names of the inheritors are all children who died at birth. He hasn't done that one yet. We don't investigate that quite yet because that's not until she comes back and confronts Rachel about it. It's not until after the dinner. Well, it's the, the other technician guy says... Like so, we have he says a guy. What you've got here is a guy that's been lurking around since, since the seventeen hundreds. Pretends to die every once in a while, shows up as his own long lost relative, and signs for his own stuff. But she doesn't do the research on the birth certificates yet. I'll take your word for it because you've watched <laughs> this movie about twenty times more than I have. Because she did in the. She's about to go talk to Rachel. And the first time she goes to talk to Rachel, well, my, she hasn't done that investigation yet. My next note is Mr. Nash isn't here. That's Rachel. Right, right. She goes to Mr. Nash's emporium. And <laughs> antiques. <laughs> it's, it's R. Nash's antiques. It's on the tomatoes, window. Tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> 
and uh, says, I want to talk to Mr. Nash. Right. Mr. And Nash she says isn't she's not here, here, but he comes down. And, and she says, Miss Russell Nash is dead. That's the second time she comes back. That's the second time she yes, goes to his this apartment. This time he comes down and walks out of the elevator and he's like, it's okay, Rachel. I'll talk to her. And they walk over and look at the display case that's to the left of Rachel. Isn't that when he goes to the ruminator? No, no. No, because this is he the says, second time in the ruminator. He says, do you cook? He says this. Do you cook? Why? I thought we might have dinner. Did you? Yes. Which is his heavy-handed attempt at getting her to go out on a date with him. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. Because this is the initial, he's investigating her scene. Because prior to the montage yeah. scene that we just had. Brenda visits Nash, flirting ensues. Yes, yes. Brenda visits Nash, flirting ensues. That's and this then right now. And then the uh, police masculine conspiracy against the intelligent, competent woman. And that's where the... Um, the bald guy yeah. gets sent to monitor her Right, apartment. so that's why yeah. he's waiting outside because remember earlier when we had the brief modern time interlude, they established that Brenda was contacting Nash and that's why they're following her. So he goes to her apartment after that stupendous way of inviting himself over by asking her if she cooks, <laughs> which is just, if a man walked up to me and was like, do you cook? I'd be like, you know what? Fuck off. <laughs> I'm not cooking for you. Who invites themselves over for hold dinner on, hold that on, way? Hold on, hold uh, on. I had the con- the conspiracy against the intelligent woman and then flashback to Nazi Germany. Yes. Yeah, so that's why when he leaves to go to Brenda's apartment, he's upstairs looking out the window and Rachel walks up. And she says, do you remember when we met? And that's when we get the flashback of her saving him, of him saving her in Nazi Germany. Right. Yeah. He, we, we have a close up of her face and then like the, she's in a little box room and somebody opens it up and in pops Christopher Lambert. Yes. And we get the cool explosion glass shard transition, like the window exploded and it took us back to the past. And he says, I'm like you. I'm all alone. Yes. And so she, apparently that's charismatic enough. She immediately trusts him. Hey, he works on somebody. One. One One buddy. He works on one buddy. (laughs) (laughs) But he gets his, it's a kind of magic. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey. Which becomes the title of the soundtrack. And then he uh, dispatches the Nazi officer, soldier, whatever. And then. Then when we come back, we're downstairs getting. Hold on. As he's talking to the the German guy, classic Lambert Raspy laugh. (laughs) It really is iconic. It it is. That's that's his like signature, like the arrogant, like I am totally winning and you don't even realize it. Yes. 
uh, response of whatever character Christopher La- Christopher Lambert is playing. He does that <laughs> with like, there's no like vocalization. It's just the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So then date night with Brenda. Date night with Brenda. Sparkly. Which she somehow agreed to. Even after that stellar opening line, do you cook? Okay, okay. So this is this is just as much her being intrigued by the Russell Nash character. I'm not as, saying she doesn't have an ulterior motive. Right. I'm saying he could try a little fucking harder to be charming. Maybe maybe she probably wanted him to try a little harder. He was, he was trying to see how little he could try, and she would still go with it. I, that's believable. I I believe that. Yes, because I <laughs> literally the medieval man. Yeah. The yeah. do you cook? You could cook for me. <laughs> uh, so it's it's just as much her being like intrigued and attracted to the Russell Nash as much as. Okay, there was this crazy sword that should not exist at this crime scene. There was an antiques dealer who's like very, very shady also at the crime scene. He knows some stuff. I need to learn more because this could be like a big breakthrough just for me, like career wise. She's in this for the swords. She's in this for the swords. And that's only the partially sword. <laughs> but we do get this wonderful line. What are you going to do? The question is, what are you going to do? You going to turn off the tape or are you going to shoot me with a 45? After he spent some time walking around. And he sees all of the stuff because she's in the other room getting stuff ready. So apparently she actually did cook for him. And you mentioned that this is a very good scene where we're seeing Russell Nash, the immortal. Yes. And I mentioned to Rachel that this was this scene, this, um, this date night, uh, scene was the most prominent contrast of, Connor McLeod, the immortal versus Russell Nash, the particular incarnation of Connor McLeod, um, like masking to live productively in society. And so like we see his behavior like very efficiently scouting the apartment and collecting all the relevant pieces of information about how Brenda is acting weird, like anything wonky, uh, he like immediately gravitates to and investigates. And then while he's doing that, just very smoothly, she's talking from the other room and he is responding extremely like smoothly conversationally. And so we're seeing this contrast of how 
aggressively and efficiently. He is um, basically doing reconnaissance while maintaining his cover and just continuing this smooth conversation. And then uh, she comes in and he opens a bottle of Hennessy yes. <laughs> uh, from the year 1783. It's a very good year. It's a very good year, he says. Um, and Rachel remarked that this was the first time we get to see one of his flashbacks from the outside. Yes, we don't get and, a, we don't get a clip here. Right. We we don't get a vis, we don't get a visual cut to a different scene, like a whole different like sub narrative, whatever. We just see him like eyes closed, like exp, experiencing the memory of a like one or more flashbacks and he's just narrating. And I think this is another example of where Christopher Lambert just acts really well as Connor McLeod, the immortal. And then he comes out of it and she says, she kind of cocks her head back to the side. What's that? <laughs> oh, as for you, can I open it? If you like. If you like, yes. And so she opens it. A present. It's her effing book. Yeah, it's her book. <laughs> and he's like, touche, motherfucker. <laughs> like, I know there was some pretense here where you had an ulterior motive allowing me to come here uh, and making me dinner, whatever. You're not the only one with ulterior motives. Yeah, he's like, funny, your biography mentions that you work with the police, and there's a police officer sitting outside. <laughs> so when, when he first got there, he asked her what she did. And she said, oh, oh, I, I work with the Metropolitan Museum and uh, in acquisitions. Yes. And he says, oh, it's funny. Your bio in that book doesn't say anything about the Met. <laughs> She's like, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is where we cut back to uh, Connor and Heather, where Sean says, you must leave her, brother. That's after the second. Oh, okay. Nope. Yep. You got this. You got this. I got this. <laughs> uh, and then we have a whole long montage of Heather aging yes. uh, while Connor does to not. the sultry, immortal tones of Freddie Mercury singing Who Wants to Live Forever. <sighs> Man, this is a moment. This is a yes. film moment i mean the setting is gorgeous the set is gorgeous heather's makeup is suspect (laughs) (laughs) what 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 do you mean they put her in a white wig Uh, and they dyed her eyebrows white she's obviously like 70 years old she could have been 38 (laughs) this is like 1500s But, but, 
What saves this moment is who wants to live forever. Absolutely. And this is the move. This is the song that needs to play over every sad moment in your life ever. Every positive moment, just any impactful moment in your life. Put on who wants to live forever. And just live in that moment because Freddie Mercury didn't have to sing that for us, but he did. And it's his gift to us. And if we don't appreciate it, then who are we as people? We're worthless. We're worthless. This, this is a fucking gorgeous moment right here. This is, a, yes. this is the scene. One of those scenes that makes a movie where you're like, okay, it's been good. It's been funny. We've had a nice sort of popcorn mix of serious moments, happy moments, sort of light moments where the movie doesn't take itself too seriously. But then we get this little montage where he's realizing that everyone he ever loves is going to grow old and die. All right. And with that, we're back to the future. Back to the on a bridge. Cast with here. Not, not to be flippant, but the token black guy. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, there's not, this is a pretty whitewashed movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the, the African immortal guy uh, meeting on the bridge. So, the gathering is here. Time's almost caught us, my friend. Has it? Castigier's attitude about this uh, reminds me a lot of in the Matrix, where Tank the like puts them all under um, on the ship. Goes something like, "God damn, what a time to be alive!" Like because Neo is there and Neo is the one, and uh, and so Castigier is like. Yeah, it's the gathering. I'm so glad but I lived to I'm see so this. I'm so glad I lived to see this. Yeah. Uh, you know, what a time to be alive. They kind of chat a little bit in part ways, and they hadn't seen themselves since 1783, which is the same it's... year as the Hennessy that McLeod opened for Brenda. Yes. 1783, 1786. Because he says it's been 100 years. Oh, right. oh, it's 1985. Says it feels like it's been a hundred years, and he goes, "It has been a hundred years." Yes, yeah. Uh, when he's talking to Castigier, yeah, Castigier is man. It feels like feels like it's been a hundred years. It has been a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, '80s grunge Kurgan is the vibe for the whole movie. Oh well, no, we get the fun flashback of the last time they were together when Christopher Lambert accidentally insulted somebody and ended up in a duel and he gets was stabbed figure there. Yeah. And he gets stabbed a bunch. Oh yes. The, the drunken duel scene is, is my favorite hilarious. flashback. Yes. This is a much needed. It adds a lot of levity to all of this serious stuff that's been building up. Yes, this is a much-needed resting point for us as viewers at this point because we jumped in cold, and it's just been going pretty much since we jumped in. 
Very little has actually happened between the two storylines. But because we have two storylines going, it feels like a lot has happened. Right. And this is an almost incongruous because we don't really see Castiger again. And he's not even really in the flashback. But this nice little funny flashback where Connor gets stabbed. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. While his wig is falling off. He's obviously drunk. Right. And his opponent, um, what's his name? Bassett. Bassett. I was thinking basalt, but Bassett. Bassett. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bassett. He's like, Bassett, I'm sorry I called your wife a... uh, Bloated warthog. A bloated warthog. I bid you good day. And he just leaves. Stop, sir. I beseech you. I apologize for calling your wife bloated warthog. (laughs) And I bid you good day. So after he gets stabbed, what, five or six times? Yeah, he's just like, you know what, we're done. And Bassett's like cleaning his sword, putting it away. And then Connor stands back up, like, oh, wait, what are we? I've I've gone blind. It's funny, it's light, it's a much-needed moment, because this is our last resting point before we get to kind of the climactic action of the rest of the movie, which is a lot. We don't get a lot more plot development after this. It's just the Kurgan doing his shit for the next, like, 45 minutes. Right, yeah, after this duel scene finishes, it's, like, full 80s grunge Kurgan, like, marching out of the hotel... And I think for the Kurgan, this is immediately after the candy scene. Or is this later? Because he's on the way to the church. Not yet, because he's got to kill Castigir. That's right. Right. He, we, we go from this flashback to there's a fellow in a car, uh, a previously unknown character. And we follow oh, him yes. as a third-party character. So at this point... As, as the, um, the gun bootlegger, as I named him, um, is driving along and sees the Kurgan and Castigir fighting, I thought, could I actually name my child Clancy? <laughs> How a man named Clancy plays the Kirkin as well as he <laughs> plays the Kirkin and then goes on to be the voice of Mr. Krabs and SpongeBob. That's, that's range. That is he, he range. Needs, he needs a, a uh, biopic. <laughs> he really does. He was also in earth too. Do you remember earth too? He's, he's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah. He's been in a lot of stuff, but we, he, he kills the castigear here. And this yep. is mostly relevant because our third party observer who we only see in this moment and we only see briefly after this, witnesses it. Right. And is able to give a description to the police. Right. And this is the third time that we've seen one immortal kill another and see the the result. Yeah, the quickening. The quickening. Yeah, and this is a cool scene also where he's telling the police what happened because we do not get his direct dialogue. We He says the intro to what he's about to say. And then we cut to kind of a several rooms away through the window view with kind of a innocuous thing happening over the intercom. 
Right. While he gestures wildly, appear, apparently talking, but we don't hear it. Right, but we hear the last of it. Well, we cut back to their shocked expressions. Yeah. And the police are like, okay, thanks. <laughs> All right, so Kurgan kills Castigar. Uh, what? Okay, uh, and then the police question the gun bootlegger about the whole thing. We see the Kurgan experience the quickening after killing Castigar. He walks out to the street, stops a car, pulls a guy out. There's an elderly couple in a car, pulls the old guy out, hops in, and just says, Hey, Ma! <laughs> and starts driving. Joy riding with Grandma. I think that's when we see the the big neon sign. Yes, we get a Silver glimpse Cup of it. Studios. Yes, and we're gonna come back to this idea of him driving somebody around at the end. So this is a foreshadowing. All right. So now we we kind of circle back to Connor and Heather's. Uh, like aging montage where just before she dies, she asks that Connor light a candle for her on her birthday to remember her. So Connor's at a church, some big like Catholic cathedral thing, uh, lighting a candle. He says a quick prayer and then he goes and sits down and then the Kurgan comes in, kind of sloppy, like just sauntering in. Devil may care attitude. <laughs> he goes over to where the candles are and he just kind of plop, 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 like swats out all the candles. Yeah, and he terrorizes some nuns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so and he's got a haircut. He has gotten a haircut. So at the beginning, when the Kurgan was first introduced, he had a full head of black hair. Uh, But now he's mostly shaved. Uh, And when Connor remarks on this, uh, he says he's in disguise. Yes. That way they won't recognize me. He also has safety pins through his scar. Yes, the scar on his neck from Ramirez, he has put probably 20 safety pins through. Yes, he said, I'll see your 90s or early, late 80s grunge, and I will raise you some pretty hardcore metal. I mean, he's got like a chain mail. Yeah, he goes from grunge sleeve. to heavy metal. Yeah, he's got like a grunge sleeve, like a chain mail sleeve. He's got a leather jacket. He's got a tattoo on the side of his head of a dragon, which is the only part of his head that still has hair. Because the, the dragon tail of has the hair. dragon is the one remaining lock of hair on his head, which makeup, awesome job. Yeah, I mean this is a bald cap, but it's a good, it's a well done bald cap. Yes, it's a well done bald cap. The priest attempts to kick him out because they can't hurt each other on holy ground. Right. This is this is one of the rules. Like, biggest rules that Ramirez taught Connor is. 
You never fight on holy ground. You're always safe on holy ground. Yes. No immortal will violate this rule. Right. And there's no mystical reason for this. It's literally just convention. They right. don't fight so each everybody, other on holy ground. everybody, regardless of who the immortal is, has a safe place. On any holy ground. Any holy ground. Any holy ground. And then Connor leaves, or uh, Connor stays. No, uh, Connor leaves. He gets up and says, you leave. have to leave sometime. Because oh, yeah. Connor says, you have to leave sometime. Because the Kurgan has mentioned that it's the la- they're the last two. Castigar is dead, and so now there is only the Kurgan and Connor left. And so Connor gets up to leave, and he tells the Kurgan, we're going we're gonna to duke this out later, because you've got to leave sometime. And then the Kurgan sits back down, and the priest comes and tells him, listen, people are trying to have a moment here. People are trying to pray here. People are trying to pray here. And you're disrupting them. And you're disrupting them. And so he gets up. Pretends to kiss the priest's ring, but just licks his hand. because Licks his hand, like, in the most disgusting way. <laughs> he is committed. While maintaining so eye contact com- to establish dominance. So committed to this vibe. I mean, he was like, here I am. I am the Kurgan. The Kurgan doesn't kiss when they can disturb someone to their very core uh, by licking them. In fact, he utilizes his tongue a lot. In this role, he sticks his tongue out. He makes weird tongue noises. He licks people. He commits. And on his way out, he says, I have something to say. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Oh, he also uses the word effete in this scene. Oh, yes. When he is talking to Connor. He says that Ramirez was an effete snob, which I think is a really interesting addition to his overall gruff character. Right. To imply that the Kurgan is actually very well read and literate. Old. That he's old and wise. Right. That he's not only bloodthirsty and terrifying. He's not only an aggressive bloodthirsty warrior. Right. He's also very 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 old and learned yes which i thought was really interesting which my interpretation of uh the quickening was that when you absorbed the person's power like just their life energy you also absorbed some of their life experience yes and this is carried over into the television show because at one point duncan who is the main character of the television show, absorbs a dark quickening where someone is so evil, and like the cumulative nature of this quickening is so evil that when he takes it, when he kills the person and absorbs it, he himself becomes evil. And he actually has to find a way of discharging this dark quickening without passing it on to anyone else. So someone can have a sum of experiences so horrific that they literally corrupt the next person who kills them. That's, an int- that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So after this scene, uh, at some point, the Kurgan gets Brenda. 
Well, no, she he hasn't even revealed himself to Brenda yet. This is the moment where she shows up and confronts Rachel. And Rachel says, John, Russell Nash isn't here. She goes, Russell Nash is dead! And slams her hand down on the desk. And that's when he takes her upstairs, because he's like, well, shit, she already figured everything out. I might as well just go ahead and stab myself in front of her. That's the next logical course of action here. Just really running with the overall killer vibe that he has with Brenda of he can't flirt to save his life apparently and he also can't lie to her so as soon as she calls him out on his bullshit he's like you got me I'm immortal I've been alive for four and a half centuries and I cannot die well everybody's got their problems and she's like you know what super hot and they have an intimate moment a graphic intimate moment that in parts does not make sense which we kind of assumed he's he's immortal he's learned a couple of tricks you know he's a little kinky a little, little kinky maybe i don't know you've been having sex for 450 years you, you got to try out new things right you can't stick with the same old same old so i get it and then we cut to a zoo scene where they're watching some lions run around in the zoo, which is the saddest lion enclosure I've ever seen. And he actually stares down a lion. Uh, and then in the background as they're chatting is the curtain. Oh, yes. They're walking. Yeah, they're walking down the sidewalk between the exhibits. Yes. And like very well framed there on the right side. And then off in the background is the silhouette of the curtain. Yes. And she's like. Um, I think we should be together because you're hot and you're immortal, and I think that's pretty hot. And he's like, look, I know we kind of we flirted successfully from his point of view because he got where he wanted to go with this relationship. And I realized that you stabbed me, and then we got it on, but it's not going to work. We can't be together because I tried it once. She got old and died. You're probably going to get old and die too. I can't go through that anymore because I'm emotionally sealed myself off to those kind of experiences. So you got to go. And she's like, okay, well, thanks for the memories. <laughs> and she dips. But the Kurgan, who has watched them, follows her to her apartment. So the very next scene, she's walking up to her apartment with some books. And he appears at the top of oh, the that's stairs. Right. She's in the stairwell. Yes, and she has the option of running down the stairs. She's one floor. He is one floor up. And he kind of growls at her. Yes. And she drops the books. Smart move. She runs to her door and fumbles with her keys. Not smart move. She could have just run back down the stairs and out into the street. Right. But instead, she runs into her apartment to get her gun. Because that's what she runs in to get. So right. she runs and gets her gun. She turns around and points Smart it at move. him. But he just pushes her hand up. and She discharges the weapon above her head. And then we get a repeat of the grandmother car scene. The joy riding scene. Yes. And really, there's no plot between here and the end of the movie. The end of the movie is still about half an hour off. But we have tons of car scene. And then we have... The longest fight scene of the movie 
where they truly destroy the roof of the Silver Cup Studios. And they I actually... have about 30 O's in the word long here. Yes. Uh, it's not notable, unless you like sword fighting scenes. This, it's Which, okay. the, sword fighting, the sword fighting scenes here are not particularly nuanced or sophisticated. Yeah, we're getting early days. It's... We're getting it's very reminiscent of, um, like, Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker lightsaber scene. It's true. What do you it's, know? Castigars in Episode One. <laughs> uh, so they fight and fight and fight and fight and fight, and then they fall through the skylight. Uh, we do get kind of a mirror of Heather running away from Ramirez and the Kurgan because Brenda is trapped on this rooftop and she's trying to escape while the Kurgan and Connor are duking it out. So we get kind of a nice mirror here of the previous fight scene. But it ends much better this time because after they fall through the skylight, they get kind of a... You get a more upbeat background music. So clearly... He's was losing maybe before, but now, now he's serious. So somehow Brenda has teleported down into this room with them, even though they had to fall like two stories to the floor. But is realism what we're concerned about at this point? I don't think so, because he cuts the Kirkins head off. A giant he, tornado of the energy. The cloud emerges. finishes Ramirez's cut. Yes, he finishes Ramirez's cut. He does. He cuts it off. We get a brief kind of creepy smile scene where we're not sure if it was successful. And Windows then his, explode. His head slowly peels back. Yeah. And then we get kind of a creepy sound because apparently the Kurgan was so evil and so powerful that you don't just get lightning and explosions. Oh, no, you get an animated tornado of evil demons. <laughs> Yes, like an overlay cartoon animated tornado. Yes. Uh, sucking itself into Christopher Lambert. And he's making vague, portentous statements like, I know everything. I am everything. <laughs> Which is apparently the prize because he's uh, the last on. immortal now. Hold on. The prize is the first male multiple orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> yes because you have been described <laughs> you wrote that down in your notes <laughs> that's the end of my notes <laughs> because the you, prize the first male multiple orgasm i mean it's it's as accurate as anything else because we don't know what the prize is because after that we cut to a scene where they're hanging out on the highlands in scotland and brenda goes so what is the prize and he goes yeah i can hear people's thoughts all over the world and i can change what they're thinking and she's like, what am I thinking right what now? What am I thinking right now? And he's like, that you love me? So he's not You're even. You're wondering if you could love me. Yes. So and the answer is yes. I'm the same as you. I'm just a regular person. Uh, except that I can hear the it, thoughts it, of everyone. Except that if I world. try, I can hear people's thoughts all over the world. And I could start World Presidents, War III. Presidents, prime ministers. I mean, start World War III right now because I could do that. Which is why we didn't want a bad guy to win the prize, right? But we're right. never going to refer to the prize like this ever again in the subsequent three movies and television show that are going to follow this television show and spinoff 
Yeah, it's not going to, I mean, we're never going to talk about the prize this way again. In fact, any other time we reference the prize, it's going to pretty much just be that they got to become mortal. Because that, well, Highlander 2 is not canon. Highlander 2? What Highlander 2? They made (laughs) Highlander 1 and then they made Highlander 3, which was a bold choice (laughs) to not make a Highlander 2. Right. But they... They didn't do it. There was no Highlander 2. What yes. are you talking about? Yeah, uh, if if we could collectively retcon our way out of Highlander 2, uh, we would. And everybody would. <laughs> uh, the only highlight of Highlander 2 is that Ramirez comes back briefly right. uh, w- with no explanation because he's dead. And there's there's some explanation. Yeah, they, they have so much chemistry as friends that he literally summons him back with lightning. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so... So when we come uh, back in Highlander, Highlander 3, which is the actual next Highlander movie, <laughs> he is mortal. <laughs> Brenda has passed, tragically, and he's mortal. And they find another immortal who is trapped in a cave. But trapped in such a way that, that they he stayed was dead. dead in the interim. He was waiting for some rocks to be lifted off of him to right. revive. He couldn't revive. So because he and was then, dead... Yeah. As soon as they moved to the rocks, boom. Christopher Lambert's young again. Yeah. Is he? <laughs> Is he? Yeah. So, <laughs> rewatch score. What's your rewatch score? Oh, this is like an eight, and you can you can rewatch this movie. Yeah, I'm there with you. It's like an eight. I clearly watched it a lot because I was quoting it the movie as we went yeah. along, which is why Matt chose to be the narrator, although I had a very hard time giving up narrator, apparently, because <laughs> I still talked for uh, 40%. But One, my, my notes were not comprehensive. Hey, it's your first time, okay? Every, everybody fumbles a little on their first time. <laughs> maybe Maybe next time you'll get the prize. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Matt mentioned a scene that is an impactful scene earlier okay. on that we didn't yeah, cover so in depth. This is during, I, I just kind of glossed over it as the training montage. Uh, but like throughout the rest of the movie, we reference the quickening a few times. And so uh, the quickening is kind of like, like the way the Kurgan talks about it, the quickening is when you kill another immortal all of their energy gets transferred to you increases your power um and that whole experience is the quickening but during the training montage between ramirez and connor mcleod there's one scene in particular that i thought was really well done where they're on a beach and Ramirez is explaining to Connor, uh, he says, look at that stag over there. Like, calm yourself and feel its energy, feel its heartbeat, whatever. And I thought Sean Connery's acting, just like, not, not just the words, but just like his physical movements uh, in that scene were really really well done um 
and really conveyed the perspective of like, okay, I'm connecting with this animal and I am now embodying this animal. And, and then he says, that is the quickening after the whole thing. Um, and so that perception of the quickening as just like the general ability to sense and connect to any life around you uh, is a very different perspective on what is the quickening versus how the Kurgan talks about it. It's a much more generalized description of the quickening, which makes more sense in this movie because when Ramirez meets Connor and he feels, he gets like struck by lightning. He says that, that you're feeling right now, that's the quickening. Right. That's your connection to life. And here forward, we're only going to refer to the quickening as what you get when another immortal dies. But in this movie, the quickening is treated much more as like they can sense life force. And they can sense the life force of other living things because he does in some parts sense like Brenda, Brenda is following him and he knows it because he can sense her. Right. He's familiar with her life force. With her like life force. And you can sense the different life force of an immortal versus the Probably life force of Probably because they're like the life force of an immortal would be, and the life force of an immortal that has killed other immortals would be massive compared to your average human around you. Yeah. So definitely the quickening is treated more as a sense and less of a like event, which it will be here forward. It will be always be just described as the quickening when they kill another immortal. But I think in a lot of ways, this movie treats the mythology in the way that you kind of would like to have seen it treated moving forward. Where we right, leave they it. Don't, they don't define everything. We leave it very open. We leave it very open to interpretation, open to exploration. Whereas moving forward. Like the force in episodes four, five, and six. Yes. Versus yes. episodes one, two, three. Right. Where you go from it being this. The force is literally just the energy created by all living things. And some people are able to manipulate it and some people aren't. Two, it's parasites living in your blood and it's measurable. <laughs> and right. the amount of those parasites living in your blood determines how much force how you force can sensitive use. You are. How force sensitive yeah. you are. I mean, that takes the magic out of it. So once we move on to Highlander 3, which is the next movie... And then on to the rest of the television show, it loses a little bit of magic. Although they do explore different things, like if some if an immortal gets beheaded on accident, where does the quickening go? Because does it have to be a specific immortal that beheads them? For something that is a deceptively simple mythology, there's a lot of questions. And it's really, it's, it's interesting. Like, this is something that I loved that they explored so much. And I want this movie rebooted. Like, I don't normally care one way or the other whether we take a movie and remake it or not because I enjoy the movie as it is. But 
A deceptively simple mythology like this is something that I would love to see explored again with more modern sensibilities. Because we get a lot of over-the-top, overly complicated, really in-depth. If you haven't watched it from the first season of the first episode, why even bother television shows? And they feel so overwhelming that I would, I, I want a step back like this, where you just, it's like Sense8. I liked Sense8 because in the very beginning, it feels very simple. They can talk to each other and they can visit each other. And then it builds on itself. And by the time it's built itself up to the complexity you want as a sci-fi fantasy viewer, it's like being in the pot of water as it's heated up to the boil. You don't feel like you're getting dropped in boiling water. You've been along for the ride the whole way. And it's great. And that's, I, I, I just, hey, and I want Henry Cavill to be Connor McCloud. <laughs> like, he got cast as it. It was under development. And I really hope that his new venture doesn't steer him away from finishing this because I want to see that movie. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> I agree. All right. So that was that was Highlander, the director's cut. Um, and so now for the, the end. Aww. The end of our conversation about Highlander, uh, the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> and not the second movie, Highlander 3. Not yet. Um, <laughs> what are our awards? For this movie. Okay, well, my award goes to Brenda for the most oddly specific shoehorned set of specialties of any character in a movie. She gets to not only investigate the murder and be introduced that way, but she's also literally wrote the book on uh, metallurgical history of sword making. And I, I feel like without her set of specialties, this movie doesn't work. So congratulations, Brenda, for having the exact specialties required to further this plot line. All right. Uh, my award goes to the hot dog stand guy. Hey, Moran. Have you read what it says in here? You kidding, Tony? You know cops can't read what does incompetent mean? That mayor, he calls me at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I don't even answer the phone anymore. Hey, what does baffles mean? <laughs> Who's heckling the police officers, and it's like the like cleanest, most, I don't know, comprehensive, but like the most effective heckling of... <laughs> Some police officers who have, uh, they've already decided who the bad guy is. So they're not even attempting to investigate uh, this murder. And it's just this hot dog guy, hot dog stand guy reading the newspaper while these police officers are getting hot dogs. Say, uh, what does, what does incompetent mean what does bumbling baffling baffled baffled, baffled. what yes. does baffled mean 
yeah, I think a hot dog stand guy for most effective heckling of incompetent police officers is my award. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. You can find us on Instagram at the strange and beautiful book club. And you can find us on Patreon at the strange and beautiful book club. So in the meantime, until we meet again, Oh, I'll be announcing what we're going to watch um, on the Instagram. So if you want to keep up with that, you've got to check us out there. And That means she hasn't decided yet. does not mean I haven't decided yet. It means it's still a mystery. Also, we're reading a book. So in the next couple of weeks, oh, we're hoping to do a book. Episode, yes, right? in the next couple of weeks, we're hoping to do a book review. We'll have a special guest. And it is going to be of A Court of Thorns and Roses. So if you want to pick up a copy of that and get started reading, I highly suggest it. Rachel has not stopped reading it all day. It's research. Research. Okay. Research. She's committed to her research. (laughs) Remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful, too. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye. the table when you hit when you hit the table it transmits to the microphones okay i need to put some kind of rubber baffle at the mount if you just don't smack the mic or the table we're fine rude